suffering, as we've been learning, is inevitable. But what if we do good? What if we strive to only do what is right? To live according to God's standards? Can we suffer even when we do good? We might like to think that if we're saved and we're living for God, then we'll avoid suffering in this life. And the avoidance of suffering may not be the goal of Christianity, but certainly we would say, if I'm a good person who lives a godly life, then I shouldn't suffer. And if I do suffer, that means that I've probably done something wrong and I have not found favor with God. But scripture doesn't teach that. We see examples from Abel to Noah to Joseph, the prophets, Jesus himself, the apostles. God's people, even those who walked closest with him, have suffered at the hands of other people for doing what is right. So today we want to answer the question, how do we deal with suffering when the cause is righteous living? And we will seek to answer that question from what was just read in 1 Peter chapter 3. Brief overview of 1 Peter. This is a letter that was written to believers who were familiar with suffering. There was anti-Christian sentiment that was spreading throughout Rome and Asia Minor. And believers there were facing persecution for their faith in Christ. So Peter is writing to them to remind and to encourage believers to stand firm. And how would they do that? By holding fast to the hope that they have in Christ and having an eternal outlook in the midst of suffering. So the suffering, the idea of suffering that we're going to look at today is the idea of suffering for doing good. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean sitting through my preaching. As we have discussed in this series, relief from physical discomforts and the pursuit of a a life of ease are not the primary objectives of Christianity. Holiness matters more. All who follow Christ must be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake and recognize that God can use suffering to produce holiness in us. So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're starting in verse 13, and Peter asks the question, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In the first chapter of this book, Peter admonishes his readers to pursue holy conduct. Holy conduct, righteous living is described here in in the book of 1 Peter in the preceding Verses before verse 13, verses 6 to 12, as sympathetic, loving, tender, humble, not seeking revenge, not reviling, or speaking words of contempt, respecting others, honoring others, blessing others, seeking peace with others. The word good, I think we would agree, is best defined when we think about Holy conduct and what is good, goodness is best defined in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate good. 
So to be good and to do good is to seek to imitate Christ with your life. All of these characteristics that we're looking at are embodied in Jesus Christ. You're unselfish. You're thoughtful. You're generous. You're kind. To be good is to be obedient to Christ and not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, as Peter says, but pursuing holiness in Christ. So who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Zealous for doing good. What does zealous mean? We don't really use that word much in 2023, right? Not part of the Gen Z vernacular. Lit, drippy. Yo, brah, you're mad zealous. So we have to kind of define what this means to understand it. Being zealous means to be marked by passionate support for a person, cause, or ideal. You may know that two of the apostles of Christ were zealots. There was Simon, not Peter, and Judas, not Iscariot. They were members of the zealots. And this is a group of people that Peter's readers would have been familiar with. The the zealots in the New Testament had pledged to free the Jews from all foreign rule by whatever means necessary, no matter how extreme. That was their passion. They devoted their lives to that cause. So Peter asks, now, considering all these qualities, if you are zealous, if you are passionate and enthusiastic, if you are devoted to living a life like Christ, if you're sold out for doing good, Who is there to harm you? He's presenting this idea of being harmed for doing good as something within the realm of remote possibilities. Now, suffering for good is a possibility, but it's it's so far-fetched at this point that Peter does not even answer the question because it should seem obvious to us. Who is there to harm you if you're good? Believers in, in Peter's time faced much more frequent and overt hostility because of their faith than we might face today. Yet they were still called to live godly lives in the midst of a hostile and godless culture. And yet Peter asks this rhetorical question here that anticipates the answer, no one. Who is there to harm you for doing good? No one. Right? The assumption is that if we live a good life, then no one will harm us. And there's a divine truth there. Peter's question almost alludes to Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, men might harm our bodies and our reputation. They might hinder our ministry. But those things are external to us. We can be put in prison and tortured for the gospel But none of those things can take away our eternal salvation. They cannot keep us from spending eternity with God. God will not harm us for doing good. And if he will not, then who really can? So we can now approach this idea of suffering with good with that confidence, knowing that Almighty God is on our side. So with that in mind, we pick up in verse 14. Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Peter wants us to recognize that suffering for good is still a possibility, even if you should suffer. And he's going to ease his readers into this idea of suffering for good. It's like getting into the pool. You know, like you start out on the steps, you're kind of easing into this idea of suffering for good. Yes, there's a chance, even though God will not harm you for doing good, there's a chance that you might suffer for righteousness' sake. Having a passion for doing good, for doing God's will, is not a guarantee that you won't suffer for it. Jesus was eventually killed. And he told his followers that they would be hated and that they would suffer for his name's sake. He also told his followers that they would be blessed when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when they are reviled and falsely accused. And this is what Peter tells us here in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And we see this concept of being blessed when we suffer for good throughout the New Testament. Those who suffer for doing good are blessed. Not what we might expect, right? Because we want to do the good thing, and because of that, we want to get the blessing. We should be able to skip over the suffering part. Doing good should lead to the blessing, but Peter says that the suffering will result in blessing for us. Being blessed doesn't always mean being happy or financially prosperous or comfortable or free of suffering. It can also mean to be privileged or to have honor given to you. If you are suffering for Christ's sake, we should see that as an honor, as a privilege. It is a privilege to be counted worthy of suffering for the Lord. It means that God is working in your life and he intends to use that suffering to make you holy. And we'll get to that idea in a moment. Peter says in this book in in chapter 4 that we should not be surprised, chapter 4, verse 12, when a fiery trial comes upon you to test you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Remember that we face a spiritual battle every day. Ephesians tells us that. We have an enemy whose forces recognize that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And want to attack us. But greater is he who is in us. The spirit of God indwells believers. So when we suffer for doing good, we should not see that as God abandoning us or punishing us. Because God is near in our suffering and we are blessed in that when we suffer for doing good. So Peter tells us that we should not be afraid. Have no fear. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Other translations might say something like, do not fear their threats. Young's literal translation says, of their fear, do not be afraid. The American Standard Version says, and fear not their fear. These translations give us a better understanding of the idea that Peter means to convey here. 
It's not so much about fearing the people themselves, but fearing the threats of what would happen to you for imitating Christ and living according to God's word. What are those threats? What are those fears? What are the things that the world tells us that we should be afraid of and avoid at all costs? Injury, death, bodily harm, loss of a job, loss of finances, severed relationships, loneliness, legal repercussions, going to court, paying fines, being canceled. These are all real possibilities. Now, some might say that the church in the United States doesn't know what real persecution is. We have legislators in our country, in our state, who are currently seeking to pass laws that would allow someone to prosecute Christians and anyone if they don't address someone by their preferred pronoun. Laws that would make what is found in this book hate speech. And you could be convicted of a felony for citing this book. That's really happening in our state right now. We just did a podcast recording this past week about some of that, so be on the lookout for that coming out this week. These are things that are happening. We have people in our church who have risked being alienated from their families and kicked out of their homes because they were baptized and made a public profession of faith in Christ. These things happen in the United States. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 tell, tell us that unbelievers will be surprised when you don't join them in the flood of sensuality and drunkenness, lawless idolatry, when you don't approve of their godless ideologies and behavior. And they will malign you. They will hate you. Why don't you just go along with it? You think you're better than us? I knew you before you were one of these church people. You were okay with this stuff before. Now you're not. You used to be in all this kind of stuff. And they'll seek to hurt you. They'll even play the victim. They'll take offense. They'll lie about you. People might even take advantage of you because you have integrity and a willingness to do what is right. And yeah, you might lose your job or have your business shut down. Your decision to do what is right might result in financial hardship. You could be mocked and ridiculed and taken to court. And in all of this, the enemy wants you to doubt God. He wants you to doubt God's goodness because you are suffering. He wants you to forsake God so that you can enjoy the comforts of this life. A little compromise, he says. You can avoid the suffering. But we cannot avoid doing good, living and acting how God calls us to live and act just because it might result in suffering and discomfort in this life. Jesus tells us not to fear those who can kill the body but not the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Isaiah tells us that our greatest fear 
should be God himself. Our only fear should be displeasing Christ. So rather than being afraid and troubled, as Peter writes, anxious, having no peace in our hearts, we must instead put Christ first in our hearts and honor the Lord as holy. What this means is that we are to reserve our hearts for Christ alone. To set apart Christ from those threats. Make him the sole object of your affections and obey him. Put him first and recognize that he is Lord. He is the authority. No matter how much power those who cause your suffering have. No matter what laws are passed. No matter who blasts you on social media. Christ is the ultimate authority. And if Christ is at the center of our lives, we will be able to respond rightly in a God-glorifying way in all trials and suffering. Suffering, again, is inevitable. Even unbelievers will suffer one way or another. What sets us apart is the hope that we have. So Peter tells us in verse 15 to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter's now writing in the indicative. He's presenting this idea of suffering as a very real possibility. So we were on the steps of the pool before. Now we're kind of in the shallow end walking around. It is no longer if, but when it happens. When it happens, we must be ready to give a reason for why we would allow this kind of suffering to happen to us. Why do we choose not to compromise just so we can avoid the suffering? Because our hope is not in our finances. Our hope is not in our job. Our hope is not in earthly possessions or relationships, or our reputation. Our hope is not even in our health. Our hope is in Christ alone. What hope do you have that you would suffer for doing good? Why don't you just wear this shirt? (laughs) Is it worth risking your job over this? Why would you set yourself up to be in so much debt? Isn't it easier just to go along with what everyone else is doing? You won't attend my son's wedding? Doesn't family matter to you? Don't you want people to like you? What hope do you have that you would take those risks? When those questions come, we must be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense. The word that Peter uses here is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics. We sometimes link that word to evangelism or outreach, and we think of people like Ken Ham or Norman Geisler. The word means to speak in defense or a reasoned statement or an argument. It's a very courtroom kind of word. The idea is that you've been put on trial, and you must now give a defense for yourself. Even the word ask that Peter uses here, in the Greek it carries a sense of interrogation. We must be prepared to give the reason. 
for the hope that is in us. We must be prepared to explain why we are willing to forsake the comforts of this world and to suffer. And when we suffer for righteousness' sake, our actions will lead to the world asking questions. And God will use that as an opportunity for gospel witness. Suffering for good is an opportunity to present the gospel. Because my hope is in Christ. I do not fear what they fear. The only thing I fear is displeasing Christ. I have set him apart in my heart as the one that I serve. It's because of his death on my behalf and his resurrection that I know that God has better things in store for me than what this world has to offer. That hope, that confident assurance of our eternity must be the focal point of any explanation that we give about our salvation. Notice also the manner in which we are to respond here. Peter says in verse 15 to do it with gentleness and respect. We can't let our response turn to a counterattack on someone else's beliefs or an aggressive debate to try to prove that we're right and to change their minds. We're simply called to share our hope, to present the truth of the gospel. The hope that we have in the death and resurrection of Christ, who is with us in our suffering, and we trust God to change hearts. Verse 16 says, We also are to have a good conscience in doing this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience goes back to living rightly before God. When others slander you and try to put you to shame, if you have confidence that by God's grace you have conducted yourself in a way that would glorify him, the hope that you have, which does not put us to shame, right? Hope does not put us to shame, will silence them. Our conscience will hold us accountable. If you're filling your mind with the truths of Scripture, your life is going to give evidence of that. And you'll be able to have the confidence that your suffering is not caused by your sin. And again, suffering is inevitable. Which is why Peter says in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Remember that suffering for doing good is blessing. Because when we, when we endure it, God will use it for our sanctification. He will use it to make us more like Christ because the goal is to make us holy. If it is God's will that we should suffer for doing good, he has a purpose in that. So Peter went from suffering being a, a remote possibility to a very real possibility. And now it's so certain that we're kind of swimming in the deep end. If we do suffer, we can be sure that God has ordained it. It is God's will. God's will for your life may include suffering for his name. And yet some will still think it's not fair. If God is good 
and God is sovereign and we are his people, then why would he allow us to suffer? How could a good God allow that? Well, if God is sovereign and he allows your suffering to take place as part of his divine and perfect plan, then your suffering is not an oversight or an accident or a punishment for something else. Suffering for good is part of God's plan. It's part of the bigger picture of him working all things together for the good of those who love him. If it is his will that we suffer for doing good, then we can trust that he is not going to waste that suffering. He's going to use it to accomplish his plan, which is bigger than us. If God is good, and he wills that we should suffer, then there must be some good purpose for that suffering within his perfect plan. And he intends that some blessing will come out of that suffering. We must also remember, most importantly, while we may suffer in this life, even for doing good, the worst suffering that we could ever experience has been withheld. The ultimate suffering, the suffering that we do deserve, has been avoided because Christ himself endured that suffering on our behalf. He endured that suffering for our sins so that we would not have to. That is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we share when we're asked to give a reason why we would endure suffering. And that's the encouragement that Peter gives us in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered at the hands of men when he himself had done no wrong. He suffered according to God's will for our benefit. He was raised from the dead so that we could have hope, that we could have an assurance of something better than this world has to offer. Because God loves us that much. That is the gospel that we proclaim. That is the truth that those who are being baptized today confess. So because of that, we owe him our lives. We must have a willingness to lay our lives down for him. And if God is good, and we are his people who owe our lives to him, then when we suffer for doing good, our suffering belongs to God. So we must suffer well and be prepared to bear witness to the truth, no matter the cost. And Christ is our example. We honor him in our hearts, so our focus on, must be on him through the suffering. Looking to him as our example. He was willing to die. His willingness to suffer is vital for our salvation. He was not afraid to die on the cross. It was more important to him to be obedient to God. To fulfill his mission to provide a way for us to be reconciled to God than it was to avoid the pain. He suffered for us on our behalf. And in doing so, he also gave us an example 
of how to suffer fearlessly for God. God intends to make us holy, and he calls us to righteous living. Even so, we may suffer as a result of that. We must recognize that our suffering, really all suffering, demands that we respond in a God-glorifying way. So how do we respond to suffering for doing good in a God-glorifying way? There are four principles of application that we see in this text that we, we can really apply in all suffering, not just when we suffer as a result of righteousness. First, remember that Christ is your hope in suffering. Our hope is not in the comforts of this world. Our hope is in Christ, and that is a living hope. We should not forsake the things that honor God just to have comfort in this life and to avoid suffering because our hope is in something greater. There is no shame when we suffer for Christ because our hope does not put us to shame. It's actually an honor and a privilege to suffer for Christ. Second, be prepared to share that hope. When you do suffer for the sake of keeping God's standards, unbelievers will be surprised and they will ask how we can be so fearless. They can ask us about what hope we have. And so we tell them. So we must know why we don't choose to conform to the standards of this world, even when it means we will suffer. We must be ready to present the gospel, to explain our hope. Third, we trust that God's will is being accomplished in our suffering. We pray for God's will to be done in our lives. His will for us is to be made holy. And he may use suffering to do that. And he has a right to do that. So we must trust that there is a bigger picture and that God is using our suffering to accomplish his perfect plan. And in our suffering, the purpose is that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. So lastly, we look to Christ as our example for suffering. Christ suffered for our sins that he might bring us to God. Look to him as your example of how to suffer fearlessly for God. When we suffer for good, remembering our hope and trusting in God's will, we will be transformed into Christ-likeness. And if you are experiencing suffering today for righteousness, Maybe in your job you're having a, a crisis of conscience and you're being asked to do one thing and you know that if you don't do that thing, you can lose your job. We want to pray for you. Whatever it is you're going through, if you feel that like God is calling you to do something that is right, that is holy, that glorifies him, and you know that there might be consequences, the things that this world threatens us with, we want to pray for you. And if you're here today and you don't have that hope in Christ that you heard about, the hope that we'll hear about in our baptism testimonies, don't leave here today without talking to us. We want to share that good news with you. We are here to help you be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation happens only through Jesus Christ. So we want to share more about him with you. So after our service today, Pastor Stephen and I will be available If you want to talk with us, if you want to pray, 
please come forward and do so. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son. For making a way for us to come to you, even right now. Our ability to pray to you is because the Son of God became flesh, took on our sin, made a way for us to be reconciled to you. So our lives that we live, we owe to him. And we pray that no matter what comes out of that, if we are faithful to you, if we obey, we pray that you give us the strength to endure all suffering, that we would remember the hope that we have because the hope we have in Christ is greater than anything this world has to offer. Give us boldness as we share your truth with others when they ask us about the hope that we have. And Lord, we trust you to transform hearts as your gospel is made known. We love you, we praise you for who you are. And whatever happens in this life, we know there are greater things ahead. So allow us to honor Christ in our hearts, to make him the focal point of our lives. In his name we pray, amen.